Greetings, all you 99%ers. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. All right, uh, the topic today is going to be um, twofold. Uh, one, I want to discuss some economic updates, what's going on in the U.S. and global economy. But then I want to mostly uh, get into uh, talking about Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to provide my reflections uh, after uh, eight, nine months here on the uh, conflict in Ukraine, both uh, military uh, commentary uh, as well as uh, economic and political of what's going on, because we're at a kind of a juncture in that war. Uh, it's going to get worse, much worse. Uh, and uh, it's getting a little scary, uh, especially... Uh, on the, the U.S. NATO side, some of the moves that are being made to legitimize and up the ante on using tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and if we're to believe uh, Western media, uh, apparently uh, Putin has been uh, talking about using tactical nukes, although uh, he denies that uh, in his recent speech here just a few days ago. Uh, he's trying to dial it back a little bit. Uh, but uh, it seems the neocons and the pro-war factions in uh, NATO, uh, including the U.S., are uh, making moves that uh, bring us a little further towards the uh, cataclysm of what a nuclear exchange would be uh, tactically on the ground. Uh, you know, they're trying to legitimize uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. has a first strike uh, policy with regard to that. Uh, and the U.S. just this past week uh, reaffirmed its first strike use, uh, not even if the other side is about to use nuclear uh, weapons, but uh, in the event that even if they're losing in terms of conventional weapons, uh, the U.S. policy is uh, it's okay to use uh, first strike tac tactical nuclear weapons. Well, you know, as the former uh, general chief of staff there for Trump, James Mattis, said uh, there's no such thing as tactical nukes. Everything uh, is strategic, and there's no way you can contain using tactical nukes to just a tactical theater. It's uh, almost certain to escalate. Anyway, I, I want to talk about uh, the Ukraine, you know, provide my views on that uh, you know, very strategic event going on right now uh, and where we may be going in next year in 23. Uh, but first, let me talk about the economy a little bit to give you uh, my update. The uh, U.S. GDP for third quarter preliminary just came out, and I think it was six-tenths of one percent. Uh, GDP growth in the third quarter, which is negligible, uh, you know, we had a contraction in the first half, the first two quarters of this year, and they were expecting much more of a, uh, the U.S. policymakers expecting much more of a growth uh, here in the third quarter. Six-tenths of one percent is, is uh, uh, meaningless. <laughs> it could very much mean with statistical uh, adjustments here, uh, the economy is still flat in the third quarter. Uh, and we've got uh, pretty much, uh, you know, all the, the bank research departments 
particularly Citibank, saying the recession uh, is definitely coming in uh, 2023. 100% chance, they say, of a recession in 2023. Uh, I think we're going to see it in the, in the fourth quarter. But let, let me get on to a overview of what's happening uh, in this uh, GDP, which is preliminary. You know, this three estimates come out on U.S. GDP growth. Uh, and uh, this is just preliminary. The second one tends to get adjusted more, and then the third one, second one comes out six to eight weeks later when they get more data, and the third one comes out uh, much later, <clears throat> and that changes very little. Uh, so, you know, are we getting a recovery here? Uh, you, you know, they refuse to use GDP, they meaning uh, the government and and other sources refuse to use GDP as the sole indicator of recession. Uh, when it's good, GDP is good, they like to use it. But when GDP is not good, like it was in the first half here, uh, they don't like to use it. And they say, oh, you know, we got all this labor, strong labor market going on. Uh, so we couldn't be in, in a recession per GDP. Well, as I've... Uh, analyze some of these uh, labor market reports in the last couple months, you know, most of that, uh, quote, robust labor market uh, in the third quarter was uh, people coming back to work. These weren't new jobs being created. They were, the economy was reopening here in the summer, and they came, were coming back to work. Uh, you know, uh, Biden brags two and a half million jobs created this year. They weren't created. They were restored. Right, And a lot of them are coming back, as I pointed out in my latest labor market report, coming back as uh, part-time jobs. And I think it was August that uh, we hired 800,000 part-time workers, while full-time worker numbers uh, contracted. But the way the U.S. calculates jobs, uh, it doesn't care if they're part-time, full-time. It just says, oh, a job was created. Okay, well, not created, restored. People came back to work. Uh, so I don't think the argument that, uh, you know, we have jobs uh, robust, uh, therefore GDP contraction does not indicate recession, really holds much water. If you look at the jobs, they reflect a weakening of the labor market. And, of course, now we're seeing some layoffs actually occurring in the housing sector. And uh, what were uh, job freezes in the tech sector now are going to quickly turn into job layoffs. Uh, as this week, their earnings in the tech sector have come in, and virtually all of them are disappointing. All the big ones uh, uh, coming in, and the business is really slowing fast. Uh, not just, I think, because of a business cycle developments, but I think uh, also because of, uh, you know, the Biden administration has this policy of uh, bringing back the tech companies, forcing the tech companies to come back from Asia uh, to the uh, U.S. or at least North America. Uh, that's what this uh, chip and semiconductor uh, act, is, $280 billion, was really about. And with all the attacks on uh, China, semiconductor and tech companies is really about force the U.S. corporations to uh, onshore to come back again. Uh, and, of course, that's disrupting everything. Uh, and, you know, China's economy is uh, <coughs> not doing so well. Um, so that's uh, impacting tech earnings and, and business as well. 
China GDP, I think, came in at 2.9% or 39 I forget which one, uh, after having predicted beginning of the year 6% uh, GDP growth. So China is slowing uh, rapidly, <coughs> and it may be even less than that. That's the official figure. China always o- overestimates its GDP. Uh, I think China's growing maybe 2%. So all that is impacting the tech sector, and the tech sector is uh, the one now that uh, is joining the housing sector and uh, clearly uh, uh, tripping over into uh, uh, contraction here. Uh, In some ways, it's beginning to look like the 2001 uh, recession. Uh, You know, we had a a boom in the housing sector in 99 and 2000. Uh, Prices got too high. Uh, That imploded. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the tech sector had a big bubble in the late 90s. And uh, in March 2000, uh, uh, that began to contract. Uh, so you had housing and tech, like today, uh, at the end of the year 2000, the election that year, uh, really beginning to weaken. Uh, and then it spilled over in 2001 to manufacturing and from there to services. So it looks like we're on a similar trajectory here, housing, then tech, and we'll see whether uh, manufacturing, which is very uh, mixed right now. Some sectors of the country, manufacturing is doing okay, others not, and it's bouncing up and down. Uh, That could be the next casualty as the Fed continues to raise rates. Okay. Uh, Pending sales and housing here is back where we were in March of twenty. And uh, way back to 2010, right? Uh, and rates are still rising. Uh, the Fed will raise interest rates here uh, next week, another 75 basis points, which puts us well over in the benchmark rate, well over 4% here. And, uh, you know, another 50, uh, 50 basis points here in December. Uh, that means we're at 5% uh, benchmark rate. Uh, Treasury benchmark rates and uh, other rates, of course, are higher. Um, Mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates are already well over 7% nationwide, even higher when you're talking about jumbo and certain uh, other regional economies like California and so forth, which tend to always have have higher rates. Uh, So, you know, the high rates are killing that industry. And we have tech now uh, for business cycle reasons, economic reasons, and uh, uh, Biden policy reasons. You know, the $280 billion is really to uh, attempt to, you know, bribe the U.S. corporations to come back. It's a big sludge fund, right, uh, particularly semiconductors. Why? Because semiconductors and chips are so integral uh, to the military today. You can't have a... Uh, you know, an advanced military without chip production. And the U.S. does not want to leave that chip production over there in Taiwan and other places in Asia, especially China, if it's going to continue to up the pressure on China here politically and militarily in the coming years, which is uh, about to happen. And, of course, uh, China is uh, preparing for that on their side, too, as their recent uh, Chinese Communist Party um uh, session here indicates the number one issue is not growth to China now, it's security. Uh, so they're getting ready uh, to. And of course, uh, you know, Taiwan's at the centerpiece of, of all this. Um, 
Remember Pelosi's trip over the Taiwan here, and then uh, you know the other uh, House representatives and the appropriations and defense committees go over too. I think a lot of that was really to uh, uh, convince the Taiwanese that uh, the U.S. will protect its uh, you know critical chip sector. It's one of the biggest uh, semiconductor producers in the world, little Taiwan, right? And to try to lure some of them over to the U.S., uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation in particular, the big one. Uh, So, you know, you can't um, separate out uh, that visit with uh, from, uh, you know, the U.S. strategy and policy of of. getting critical uh, technology and semiconductors uh, to move back to the U.S. in preparation for conflict with with China. Uh, That's what's going on. Uh, The tech sector, uh, you know, came out to here this week. Uh, The earnings, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, all disappointing, Uh, which means you're going to start seeing layoffs in all those uh, sectors right now. Um, And uh, as I said, uh, you know, the tech sector, critical sector now in the U.S. economy uh, seems to be leading uh, uh, the re- re- recessionary trajectory that we are, we are on. Uh, consumers, uh, well, we had a little boost uh, in the third quarter. In the first quarter, really, where uh, you had a real opening, total opening of the economy. So, you know, people going back to the jobs, the part-time jobs and everything, uh, and they're spending a little bit more. So we got a little bit of a consumer bump there. Uh, most of the spending's on credit cards, by the way. Credit cards uh, are going through the roof here. Uh, and now we see uh, what's called inflationary expectations being embedded uh, in households, uh, according to a report just released this week, long-term expectations. Uh, if consumers think inflation's going up, they go out and they buy more in the short run which drives demand and inflation up more than ordinarily uh, at the expense, of course, later on. Um, just the opposite occurs. Uh, so we got inflationary expectations driving consumption. We got credit driving consumption. Um, we we have hiring slowing, which is now be- going to begin to play a role here. Uh, the stock market contracted 20%. That uh, uh, has an impact on consumption through what's called the wealth effect. Uh, you know, the top 10% households that invest in stocks, if the stocks go up, they feel wealthier and they spend more. Uh, but if the stocks go down, don't. Well, we got a uh, a shifting of the wealth effect going on on consumption, which is two thirds of the economy, by the way. So it's very important. Uh, so you know, I see inflationary expectations, um, uh, hiring slowing in tech, and then elsewhere wealth effect and credit spending as uh, really what's defining going on in con- consumption side to there's an economy, uh, and then that consumption. Um, that's not a scenario for a robust long-term, uh, uh, you know, growth path in, in consumption. Uh, business investment, which is about 10, 12 percent of the economy as well. Um, tech and oil companies were the big, always traditionally the investors in, in, in the, uh, you know, new, new investment. Uh, and, of course, both of them are pulling back in their horns here. Uh, small businesses uh, are having trouble getting loans because of their rate hikes. Uh, large businesses don't care much about rates. Uh, so, uh, you know, 
you got inventories uh, uh, growing up or increasing as well. Uh, all that, I think, forebodes poorly for business investment continuing to be a driver for the economy and just the opposite. Uh, net exports. What is that? Uh, net exports are the difference between uh, exports and imports. Uh, if imports are greater than exports, uh, then you have a net negative uh, contribution to GDP. And, uh, you know, the indicator of the uh, difference between exports and imports is called the trade deficit. And uh, what we're seeing now is that with Fed rate hikes, the value of the dollar goes up. Uh, the price of U.S. Uh, goods being exported as a result goes up as the dollar goes up and exports slow. So I see, uh, you know, as the dollar continues rising here, uh, which has been on a tear this past year, uh, that's going to slow net exports already some indications of that and exacerbate the trade deficit and that will contribute negatively uh, to gdp going forward as well uh then of course you got government spending which offsets this to some extent but the spending is uh, mostly on uh, war goods and subsidies to uh, ukraine which is a hundred billion dollars so far for the u.s uh, economic military aid this year um Zelensky, uh, the president of Ukraine, says he needs another $38 billion next year just for his economy, uh, which has collapsed 50%. So uh, I don't think Europe's going to cough up with that because this recession is going to be worse. So guess what? Uh, uh, Uncle Sam's going to have to cough up from that because uh, Biden's put himself um, you know, in a corner of uh, continual uh, subsidy uh, for Ukraine both economic and militarily. Uh, so government spending, to some extent, in the third quarter is responsible for GDP uh, coming in just over uh, zero here at 0 0.6. Um, uh, you know, that's probably going to continue and, and uh, be a positive contributor to GDP. Uh, but as I said, consumptions, households, and business investment, uh, and net exports are all going to weaken uh, in terms of their contribution to GDP. And those four sectors are, are what you use to calculate GDP. Consumption, two-thirds, business investment, uh, you know, about 10, 12 percent. Uh, housing, uh, you know, maybe 0.8 percent. Manufacturing, you know, 0.12 or 12 percent. Uh, and then government spending, 20-some percent. Uh, and that's where we are. Uh, I don't see... Uh, uh, growth going forward, I agree with Citibank here. Uh, you know, the the drivers of uh, of the third quarter almost stagnation. You know, uh, are are very weak. It's consumer credit cards. It's consumer inflationary expectations. It's business uh, uh, expectations. Uh, it's government war spending, right? It's the economy reopening, which, you know, is now fully reopened, so no boost from that. Uh, in in short, uh, it's not a, a, a very robust positive picture. And um, as I said before, we're going to have continuing inflation on the supply side, regardless of what Fed rate hikes do to dampen demand side inflation by causing unemployment. Uh, I see that's going to continue Fed rate hikes. Uh, 
Uh, and, of course, the Fed rate hikes will continue to devalue uh, foreign currencies. You know, as the dollar goes up in value, foreign currencies collapse in value because the dollar is the linchpin. It's the uh, global trading currency. Uh, it's a uh, global reserve currency. You know, the dollar is the centerpiece of the U.S. global economic empire. Uh, and because it's that, uh, other currencies are pegged to the dollar. We're no longer on a gold standard. They don't peg to gold. They peg to the dollar. Dollars go as gold, right? And if the dollar goes up, the others go down. And that's exactly what's been happening pretty significantly. Uh, you know, the euro has uh, gone down over 20%. Uh, the U.K. pound has gone down. Uh, the only one, and so has the Japan yen gone down. But it's interesting, Japan is not going along with Europe and the U.S. by raising interest rates. Uh, that means its currency will get depressed, but it's trying to stimulate its economy to grow uh, out of uh, the pending uh, recession here uh, and recognizing uh, that its supply side and central bank policies and rate hikes have little effect on supply side inflation. You know, uh, global supply chains, the sanctions on oil and commodities, corporate uh, monopolistic price gouging, that's all supply side, uh, and uh, nothing can be done by Fed rate hikes to deal with that. Uh, China has even, uh, its currency has even uh, depreciated 13% to the dollar. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, Fed rate hikes uh, really wrecking the global economy uh, because if uh, the currency declines, as in all these cases it has significantly, uh, that means uh, their import prices rise. You know, their currency buys less. Uh, therefore, it's in, you know, reflects in inflation. Uh and uh, if they raise their rates like they're doing in Europe and in, in the U.K. and other countries, right, well, that slows their economy and you get a recession. So you get import inflation contributing to general inflation and you get a recession. Oh, stagflation. Well, that's occurring uh, in uh, in Europe, in the U.K., and all this political uh, uh, hullabaloo here going on has a lot to do with U.S. Uh, policy uh, uh, exacerbating, uh, you know, the economic crisis in, in in Britain. Of course, they won't say that, but that's uh, that's a that's a ma- major reason why you have the the problems and the political. Uh, well, I talked about that uh, in a recent show. Go back and listen to that if you want my analysis on the crisis in Britain, economic and political. But a lot of it's driven by uh, the Fed and the U.S. policy, right? Uh, but apart from raising import prices and inflation and uh, uh, leading to uh, more recession, uh, this, this Fed rate hikes and the appreciation of the dollar um, also longer term, little longer term, uh, result in uh, a big stress in the financial sector. You know, the, the debt uh, that accumulated over the last 10, 12 years here with near zero rates uh, now has to be paid for. And, but paid for out of less currency, right? And that's true for gor- corporate debt or government debt or consumer debt. Um, and it's really accumulated. Uh, and the, the whole process and problem is, is worse in Europe. So uh, their, their debt servicing 
problem uh, is more severe. And you can see it beginning to emerge in European banks, particularly this bank Credit Suisse, uh, which accumulated too much debt. And now um, with a collapsing currency, it's going to have to uh, pay for that debt somehow. Uh, and it's having stress. You know, it uh, it got itself into a ringer here a year or so ago with a with a hedge fund called Archegos that collapsed, and uh, they had to cover those losses. So Credit Suisse is, watch it. It's the center point of problems in European banks. But, of course, we saw in recent, recent British, British crisis, the U.K. pensions, are, are, which are shadow banks, by the way. Shadow banks are relatively unregulated banks, unlike commercial banks, you know, like uh, Chase and Wells and so forth. Shadow banks are the hedge funds, the investment banks, uh, uh, you know, uh, private equity, uh, peer-to-peer lending, um, finance corporations, finance companies that you know lend at exorbitant rates. Um, these are what we call shadow banks. There's there's a, a shadow banking system, uh, you know, aligned with the commercial banking system. Uh, commercial banks are regulated. Shadow banks aren't. Uh, so uh, usually these financial crises erupt first, you know, in the hedge funds or others. Uh, hedge funds, by the way, some of them are really taking big losses. Um, and then it spills over to the commercial banks because commercial banks loan money to the shadow banks. And if the latter collapse, that means losses for commercial banks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so uh, all this uh, intensifies when debt servicing problems arise, uh, which they are now uh, because of collapsing currencies, which are because of appreciating dollar, which are because of Fed rate hikes. You see, uh, it's all connected here. So um, uh, the currency collapse and the inflation and recession in emerging markets, even other G7 markets in countries like Europe, Japan, especially emerging markets, you know, Turkey, Egypt, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Malaysia, you know, all those Philippines, Thailand are all very susceptible uh, to financial instability if this should continue, which oh, it looks like it is. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, the Fed uh, tried this experiment of raising rates way back in 2013, uh, and it started causing uh, all this heartburn in emerging markets, uh, and uh, the Fed then backed off. It was called the taper tantrum, right? They were going to taper interest rates and raise them a little bit. So they didn't get very far, and they had to back off. Uh, and, of course, the debt load has gotten even bigger in emerging markets than it was back in 2013. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in 2018, the Fed tried once again to raise rates, uh, uh, but uh, Trump came down on them with a hammer, and it was about to fire uh, Jerome Powell, and they backed off. And the Fed continued its uh, near zero rates and uh, continued the stock uh, uh, bubble there in uh, 2019 to 2020. And now the Fed is uh, trying to make up for all that. Uh, and we'll see. It's an interesting experiment that I thought I, I predicted would, would not turn out well back in 2017 in my book, Central Bankers at the End of the Ropes. Uh, you can read reviews of it on my blog and the website, jackrasmus.com or Kikos Production. Um, so uh, 
you know, another problem with these rate hikes is that, um, and the collapsing of currency, is that countries that hold a lot of U.S. treasuries, treasury bonds and notes and so forth, you know, which are primarily China and Japan, uh, when the dollar um, causes their currencies to collapse, they don't buy as much of uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, treasuries. And uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, China's uh, stock of U.S. Uh, uh, Treasuries and securities, which was once uh, I think about 1.1 trillion, is now down to about 950 billion. So the Chinese have been quietly not rolling over its purchases of treasuries, and the same with Japan. It was 1.2 trillion. Japan, the biggest holder of treasuries, now it's down to 1.1. So something's going on here. Um, the money, the dollars, aren't getting recycled to the U.S. the way they were. Uh, because of, uh, you know, uh, the dollar appreciation and Fed policies. Uh, and that, uh, if it continues, raises issues here for what's called the twin deficits, as I've called them before, whereas the uh, during which the money uh, gets recycled back, the U.S. runs a trade deficit on purpose, free trade, you know, U.S. Uh, corporations go offshore, uh, and it runs a trade deficit, here, which means dollars accumulate offshore, uh, but then the understanding with U.S. allies are these dollars get recycled back to the U.S. purchasing treasuries and other securities. Uh, well, if the dollars aren't being recycled back, then we got a problem with the budget deficit because U.S. government uses the recycling of dollars back to cover its budget deficit. That's why we call it the twin deficits, right? The trade deficit fuels the financing of the budget deficit. And the U.S. runs these big budget deficits. Why? Uh, to enable it to give big tax cuts for the rich and the corporations and investors, which reduces revenue in the U.S. and undermines the, the budget. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. in the last 20 years has engaged in chronic wars uh, costing trillions. Well, the U.S. could not do those two things, cut taxes and increase war spending, um, if it did not have uh, the recycling of the dollars to make up the difference, you see, coming back to the U.S. Well, if China and Japan are reducing their, their purchases of securities, then that undermines that whole twin deficit um, arrangement, which is also centerpiece of the U.S. global economic empire, along with the dollar and the IMF, and the World Bank, and the SWIFT uh, um, international payment system, and so forth, right? Okay. Uh, stock markets, uh, last comment here before we get on to Ukraine. Uh, stock markets, of course, um, we've seen a little, uh, uh, two or three of these uh, what's called bear market bounces going on in the Dow. Uh, and that's because uh, investors are so flush with trillions of dollars Institutional investors, uh, they got to put the money to work. And uh, whenever they think, well, maybe the Fed has uh, has uh, reached this terminal rate, you know, it's going to stop, <clears throat> stop uh, or at least slow its uh, rate hikes come, come January next year. Uh, so, okay, they throw the money into, you know, this big money washes into the stocks and drives the stock market up. Then the Fed shows them, no, 75% rate hikes coming. Oops. You know, then the stocks retreat. And this has happened two or three times. The third time is going on right now. 
the Fed will squelch that uh, with its November 2nd rate hike. And every time it looks like uh, inflation is not abating, uh, which the employment cost index showed today, um, then the opposite happens. You know, but the investors like it when uh, these professional investors like the market to go down as long as it goes back up. They like the volatility because they make money in both directions. You know, they short the stock and they make money that way when it goes down and uh, then it goes up. You know, they, they love the volatility as long as it keeps going in both directions, you see. Uh, and... Uh, you know, we're, we're beginning to see, uh, you know, certain areas, though, like uh, the tech sector, the tech stock market, NASDAQ uh, contracting. Uh, and then, uh, you know, within the Dow, we've got uh, exchange-traded funds, some of them with big losses, uh, derivatives. Uh, these things are all harbingers of uh, uh, more stock market volatility and probably collapse. Uh, in Europe, of course, uh, we got the oil and gas crisis overlaid on top of uh, all the rest of the currency collapse and so forth. Uh, price caps, the U.S. and the G7 are trying to put in these price caps. Uh, in other words, uh, the G7 as a buyer's cartel, uh, when OPEC as a supply cartel could control global prices. Uh, the U.S. and G7 think that they can create their own buyer's cartel. Well, I've been writing about that, and that's just not going to work. And there's some sign that it's already true. Um, and now we've got, uh, you know, the, the presidents and chancellors there of uh, uh, France and, and Germany starting to complain about the fact they have to pay much, much higher price for U.S. oil and gas now that the Russians have been uh, thrown out of Europe. Uh you know, uh, U.S. has moved in and it's reaping the rewards of driving uh, uh, Russia out of the economy, energy, and the total economy of Europe here. So Stoltz and Macron are uh, talking, uh, you know, complaining. Uh, you don't get much of that in the mainstream media, uh, nor do you get much about the mass demonstrations going on in Europe right now over the inflation and the rate hikes and and fears growing about uh, nuclear confrontation. Uh, Paris, uh, in Czech, Hungary, capitals, uh, we have these big demonstrations. To the extent that Western media covers it, focuses on uh, signs uh, uh, within it uh, supporting Ukraine, you know. I mean, you have these demonstrations, everybody of different interests comes out. Uh, but they, the, the U.S. media cherry picks, you know, sectors and then says, oh, you know, this is all about anti-Russia. Uh, no, it's about, uh, uh, you know, the inflation that the U.S. policies, the sanctions and war uh, and dollar uh, have been creating. Right. OK, uh, enough for that. Let's let's get on and talk about uh, Ukraine here. Uh, I want to I make some comments, my observations and comments on this um, after eight months, because we're at a juncture, as I said here, things are going to get much worse. Uh, and and I want to make some comments both, you know, on military strategy. I'm not a military strategist, but, uh, you know, I know a little bit about it. Um, you know, any ROTC or second lieutenant knows the principles of war is first course he's ever taught. You know, what are the, the nine principles of war? You know, it goes back to uh, uh, Clausewitz and stole it from Caesar. And uh, and uh, strategist Dahomey, you know, and then, uh, of course, Lytle Hart, the British imperial strategist, First World War. 
Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, Mao and Jap there in Vietnam, they all knew these principles of war. And uh, I think uh, Putin has uh, violated the important principle of war here. He didn't uh, follow it with his special military operation here. That first principle meaning concentration of forces. Yeah, number one, you have to concentrate your forces. So at the point of conflict, uh, your ratio to theirs is much greater. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, that's not what happened with the SMO. And I, I, let me get into that a little bit more. But first, I want to uh, w- want to talk about some leading events here that are very disturbing. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier the U.S. recently, last week, reaffirmed its first strike nuclear policy. What is that? Well, the U.S. reserves the right to strike first. Uh, not just if the other side appears about to use nuclear arms, but even if the other side appears to be winning with conventional arms. The U.S. policy is it's okay to use a first strike against uh, a situation where the U.S. or its allies may not be winning in a conventional conflict. Think about that a while. Yeah, and think about that in relationship uh, to uh, what's going on in Ukraine and uh, the big mobilization that's just about done uh, by Russia as it moves into the second phase and abandons its uh, SMO, Special Military Operation uh, Strategy. So uh, first strike nuclear policy reaffirmed by the U.S. this past week. Also, the U.S. is replacing, it announced, its uh, uh, nuclear weapons stocks in Europe, uh, replacing them with uh, more advanced conventional uh, nuclear tactical weapons. Uh, That's a little scary, right? Um, Also, the U.S., uh, as you've probably heard, uh, Finland, Sweden, or Sweden are joining NATO. Uh, But what you probably did not hear here is that as a condition of joining NATO, uh, Finland has to accept nuclear weapons uh, on its border with Russia. And uh, Finland has agreed to do so. Wow. You know, Finland is, what, uh, 350 miles from Moscow? Just like uh, the border of uh, Ukraine is only 350 miles from Moscow. Uh, with these missiles that fly even faster than they did in years past, it gives uh, Moscow about uh, uh, two minutes to respond to a first strike. Two minutes. That's why the Russians are so nervous about NATO in Ukraine and uh, nuclear warheads potentially on their border. And But now we got same thing going to go on in Finland. You know, Finland's just across the street from St. Petersburg. I mean, you could probably uh, attack you know, with, with HIMARS uh, uh, artillery nuclear uh, Tip, uh, you know, artillery uh, in a matter of uh, 30 seconds. Uh, anyway, um, Finland has agreed not only to join NATO, but to deploy uh, these weapons. Right? Also, the U.S. is quietly negotiating with Poland uh, to the Poles want uh, nuclear weapons on their border with Russia or Belarus, right? Uh <sighs> And now the U.S. has moved the 101st Airborne Division into Romania, three miles from the Ukraine border. 
and uh, you know, I don't know, 30, 30 miles or whatever from uh, the critical city of Odessa, uh, port city Odessa, uh, which is you know always been strongly uh, populated by Russian speakers, and it is a target of uh, bringing these uh, uh, areas of Russian population into back into Russia. You know, like uh, we got the Donbass, Luhansk, and Donetsk uh, provinces. We've got Zaporizhia province, and we got Kherson province in the south near Crimea. They've all been uh, legally, according to uh, Russia, uh, made part of Russia, right? So Russia can now can never uh, give those back. Right, they're locked in, and of course, Ukraine will never agree to that. Uh, at least under Zelensky and the present government, uh, so we are locked into a perpetual war there until one one side defeats the other. Uh, U.S. propaganda has been pushing uh, Putin's speeches several weeks ago, saying he said uh, uh, Russia will use nuclear. Well, that's not what he said. I read that speech, and he, he and, you know, he made it clear that you, they would use whatever they needed to defend Russia, not Ukraine, to defend Russia. Uh, uh, not nuclear, but, they, you know, Western media picked up, oh, nuclear, he wants nuclear. He wants to use tactical nukes. And in the U.S., uh, they gave an opening, of course, uh, uh, to those sectors within the the neocon uh, uh, population, which is in government now, embedded deeply in the U.S., uh, to start pushing this first strike uh, uh, tactical nuke. We can win a first strike tactical war with Russia. Um, that's becoming legitimized, uh, you know, in some sectors of the media. Uh, uh, and then you got, uh, you know, dirty bombs uh, in uh, Mikolaev, which is not far from Kherson here in the south. Um, the Russians maintain Ukrainians are are preparing a, a dirty bomb, uh, which they will set off and use as a false flag uh, to then attack uh, uh, Russia with tactical nukes, uh, or at least Russian forces in, in Ukraine. Uh, and then there's the Dnipro city uh, uh, big dam that the Russians are supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, ready to explode. And uh, you know, all this is going on. It's all part of a escalation going on. And then what was really disturbing to me was uh, over the weekend, last weekend, it, it turned out that uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Austin finally met with his counterpart, Shoigu, uh, for the first time in six months. All this is going on, and the U.S. has very little or no contact uh, with Russia uh, to ensure that uh, either side doesn't uh, make a mistake and engage in tactical uh, uh, weapon use here. Uh, and um, then uh, Milley, the U.S. Uh, chief of staff general, meets with his counterpart. They're right below Austin Shoigu, defense ministers, meets with his co- uh, counterpart, Garasimov, uh, for the first time in six months, too. Wow. You know, at least during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, uh, Kennedy and uh, and Khrushchev, you know, had that red phone, and they were talking to each other. I mean, these guys aren't even talking to each other unless there's some unknown back, um, you know, back back room or uh, back channel going on, which which I hope is the case. 
Okay. All right, let me talk about what's going on militarily. I'm not an expert, uh, but uh, uh, military strategy. But uh, as I said, I've I've read some of these 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 uh, works, and uh, you know, I had at one point some exposure uh, to military training as well, many many years ago. Uh, unmentioned. Uh, in any event, uh, military events. You know uh, what happened uh, here very clearly was when Russia uh, first uh, back in February March invaded uh it invaded with an insufficient force uh i mean you know they had what 150,000 on four fronts kiev kharkov uh donbass and uh crimea kherson right uh that's 150,000 uh troops uh maybe 90,000 of which were actual combat troops which means about one full division in each of those four sectors. Now, that is not a force designed to conquer <laughs> Ukraine, and it violates the first principle of warfare, concentration of forces, very clearly. Um, so what was, what was this all about? I think it was about um, uh, Putin thought that you know, he could encircle Kiev, and Kiev would then uh, uh, capitulate. You know, kind of like uh, the Czechs did in 68 and so forth, right? That they would uh, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, they're, they can't win this. Well, Putin underestimated that because there's no way Zelensky in Ukraine was going to do that with all the U.S. support it had and had had since 2016. The U.S. came in in 2016, uh, pretty much occupied much of the Ukrainian economy, bought up much of it. Uh, after the coup in 2014, um, and the temporary uh, uh, truce uh, that was embedded in what was called the Minsk Agreement. Both sides uh, uh, would not attack each other further, meaning Ukraine would not attack the Donbass further. Uh, but uh, as, as the Ukraine president Poroshenko admitted uh, recently, uh, oh, they had no intention of adhering to the Minsk Agreement. It was just to buy time. And, of course, during that buying of time, the U.S. military helped train the Ukrainian military and built all these fortifications uh, throughout the, the Donbass re region and, and uh, uh, other areas, you know, um, uh, which make it very hard when uh, the invasion erupted here in February uh, to really, uh, for, for the Russians, really to pierce. Uh, they were able to gain land uh, up to those fortifications, uh, but then uh, could not uh, bust through those fortifications after eight years. I think Putin also uh, underestimated the amount of support that uh, uh, the U.S. and NATO would be giving uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, unlimited, unlimited support. Uh, so... Uh, you know, arms and surveillance. Uh, the Ukrainians have an advantage with uh, the uh, satellite surveillance system run by the U.S. and the AWACS flights uh, and the uh, latest technology to intercept uh, communications on the ground. Uh, this surveillance system, particularly the Starlink system, allows uh, the Ukrainians with uh, U.S. smart weapons target ammunition dumps and headquarters and, uh, you know, pick off generals and so forth. Uh, so 
Putin underestimated uh, you know, the degree the U.S. had already built up a, a defense and was going to play a role here in this whole thing. And now it's pretty clear, you know, you've got uh, a U.S. general running the show, uh, recently appointed, uh, and you've got um, uh, mercenaries, Poles and U.K.s on the ground, and some of them clearly are... Uh, are uh, from the Polish military and UK military on loan uh, to operate the advanced uh, drones and, and uh, HIMARS uh, artillery and so forth. Uh, so to some extent, you know, Putin could not uh, have envisioned, maybe he should have envisioned that this would, this would happen, uh, but he didn't. Uh, and that first phase of the attack here uh, dissipated. You know, even that 90,000 combat troops, a lot of those were militia from Donetsk and Luhansk provinces and mercenaries uh, that they've been using, Chechens and others. Uh, and after a while, you know, the the leading uh, uh, trained people, uh, you know, got depleted here. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. Uh, weapon system, HIMARS and satellites, uh, you know, depleted uh, supplies and dumps, supply ammunition dumps and so forth, and uh, really softened up the Russian uh, defense. But the big thing was, uh, over the summer, uh, Ukraine mobilized uh, 300,000, 250,000 or so troops uh, and armed them with the Western arms, uh, while the Russian forces got depleted, got bogged down and got depleted. So now we had a concentration of forces a 10 to 1 ratio in advantage of uh, Ukraine. And uh, as we saw in August, uh, they struck with a counteroffensive, and they took back some land there in the north and a little bit around Kherson uh, uh, in, in the south. Uh, so it became clear, uh, again, uh, that Russia needed to uh, change its strategy. The initial strategy was to uh, intimidate uh, uh, Kiev and Zelensky into uh, an agreement not to include NATO, because all this is about uh, uh, Zelensky and Ukraine uh, agreeing not to bring NATO in. You know, that was Russia's main demand. That's all they wanted. They didn't care if uh, Ukraine was uh, was neutral. They just didn't want it on the side of the U.S. But the U.S. was already there. Um, and uh, to some extent, uh, you know, Putin underestimated that at the beginning. Uh, he probably was advised by his advisors that they would collapse, but they didn't. Uh, and that's uh, probably why he fired uh, 100 people in his intelligence services right after that. And he concentrated his forces in the east, in the Donbass. Uh, but with the mobilization of Ukraine forces over the summer, um, uh, that even that concentration in the Donbass and Crimea area were not sufficient. Uh, and when the Ukraine counteroffensives began, they, they lost ground. And that's why they are now moving towards a mobilization. Russia, 370,000 uh, troops here. They've been preparing them. They probably will strike sometime in November, late November, I predict. In the meantime, Russia is just trying to hold on uh, to what it has uh, against superior forces, you know, and it's uh, pulling back. Uh, these forces aren't, Russians aren't getting defeated in mass in the field. They are pulling back uh, to protect what forces they have. It's a, kind of a holding operation in the north and the south. Uh, but we're going to see a real escalation of this thing uh, pretty soon here. Uh, 
you know, Russia apparently is uh, neutralizing some of the Starlink uh, satellites owned by uh, Elon Musk, by the way. And uh, as I said last week, Elon uh, uh, is complaining to the U.S. that it's costing him money. And he's softening his stance towards, you know, he's even uh, tweeting with some of the high-level Russians. <laughs> you know, he's protecting his assets as best he can. Um but uh, apparently the Russians have some technology. They can start uh, neutralizing some of the Starlink satellites. You're going to see a satellite war uh, erupt out of all this as well. Right? And uh, in the meantime, uh, Russia is, uh, has been launching uh, you know, uh, drones and, and uh, long-range missiles, uh, debilitating uh, uh, the Ukraine infrastructure. Uh, in the media in the West, it comes out always bombing uh, children parks and residential and so forth. Now, most of the bombing uh, and drone attacks uh, are concentrating on the infrastructure, the power infrastructure and in political in, in particular, uh, U- Ukraine, which has been uh, debilitated, uh, even according to Zelensky, 30 percent, probably 50 percent. Uh, you know, without power, you got no electricity. Without electricity, uh, well, you got all kind of problems with communications and all kind of problems with water because water pumping needs electricity. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Russians are softening up the ability uh, to uh, Ukraine to bring in uh, reserves once once it does attack. Um, it's not really designed to terrorize uh, the population. I don't believe that. It's mostly military objectives here. Um, uh, and that will continue to go on. Uh, and it's been quite effective so far, from what we can tell. Right. Uh, sanctions, in the meantime, aren't really working. Uh, Russia, uh, U.S. and G7 NATO sanctions on Russia oil have not worked. Uh, there's been all kind of workarounds, the same with natural gas. But yet we see somebody blew up one of the Nord Stream gas <laughs> pipelines, you know. I doubt it was the Russians, <laughs> but who else? We'll never know if it was uh, anybody on uh, on the NATO side, some uh, rogue, uh, you know, uh, one of make sure that uh, uh, Europe does not uh, change its mind and start pumping Russian gas this winter. So they blew it up, you know, and then we have the provocation blowing up the Kirk, Kirch Bridge there down in uh, uh, Crimea. Uh, and then we have uh, Ukrainian shelling of uh, uh, border cities in Russia. Uh, so Russia is mobilizing. Russia is going to war now. Uh, this SMO thing is not, uh, not no They'll keep calling it that, but uh, that that uh, expedition <laughs> uh, prove, uh, proved insufficient, ineffective. It uh, uh, Russia got a bloody nose, uh, bumping up against uh, U.S. NATO arms and uh, strategy and tactics and Ukrainian uh, uh, manpower mobilization. Uh, doesn't work. Well, that violates the first principle of war, concentration of forces, right? In the very beginning, and then even in the Donbass, when they got mobilized by the Ukrainians, right? So now the Russians are mobilizing, uh, and probably won't stop at 370,000. Uh, and uh, I predict, uh, you know, there's going to be some major conflicts coming at the end of this year, maybe even before. Uh, and the Russians uh, will once again overwhelm, 
uh, and gain back that territory and then some. And that brings even uh, to a conflict between the U.S. and Russia, NATO and Russia, uh, on uh, Ukraine uh, territory here. Uh, you know, you, you can envision a scenario uh, where the 101st uh, Airborne Division there on the border in Romania, uh, if it looks like the Russians are going to going to uh, take Odessa, where the 101st uh, moves into Odessa itself, very quickly, and then you got a situation where Russia is attacking the 101st, and that's a scenario where the U.S. and the NATO hawks can say, "Oh, you've attacked NATO, uh, therefore, you know, we're going to attack you." Uh, maybe tactical nukes, but certainly uh, pressure elsewhere, like in Belarus by Poland, and Belarus is aware of that and is beefing up its its border. And uh, Russia is even sending troops into Belarus because something's brewing over there on, on the Polish, uh, uh, you know, border. Uh, Poland always thought that Western Kiev was was Poland and should be brought back to Poland. And for a long time, it was Western Poland. You know, like Lviv, Lvov, whatever you want to call it, was Western Poland. And it wasn't until the end of World War II uh, that Russia pushed uh, the Ukraine borders into Poland as it did the. Uh, created Moldova there and into, uh, uh, you know, Romania and uh, kept uh, Eastern Poland, but gave Poland uh, Eastern Eastern Germany, Silesia, right? And, uh, you know, all of those created the buffer. Well, Poland wants that area back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Polish right-wing government is, is you know, pretty, uh, pretty crazy, almost as crazy as the Baltics. <laughs> they hate Russia so much, they just want to go to war with Russia. Uh, so, um, or at least they want U.S. nukes to protect them themselves. Uh, so, <clears throat> so you know, it's a, Russia's learned a lesson uh, of the principles of war, I believe, uh, particularly concentration of forces, and now they're going to go to war. Uh, and, uh it, it's leading us to a very unstable situation here uh, coming up uh, later this winter and after, particularly with all this talk about, oh, tactical nukes are okay, you know. Uh, I think uh, Putin gave a speech here yesterday or the day before where apparently somebody told me he's trying to um, dampen down uh, and neutralize that talk about, about uh, the Russians using, using tactical nukes. Uh, in order to, uh, you know, offset the U.S. media talk in that regard. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here uh, very soon, I think, in terms of Ukraine. Uh, but that's, uh, that's my analysis here of the military situation and the economic situation. Of course, the sanctions aren't working that much, uh, I don't believe, uh, and all this price cap stuff uh, – on oil and gas uh, is the latest iteration of that, uh, which is just uh, uh, not going to work for various reasons here. Uh, and uh, politically, of course, um, we've got uh, the, the neocons in the U.S. Okay, we'll talk about the neocons again, but I want to uh, say next week we'll talk about the U.S. midterms elections. <laughs>